He shares this little vignette. He says, in 1890, an American typically lived in a small town. Not only did their every purchase register, literally, at the one corner store's register, but it registered in the eyes and the memory of shopkeepers who, who knew him, his parents, his wife, and his children. He probably grew up sleeping in the same bed with his siblings and possibly with his parents, too, unless he was well off. His transportation was a train, a horse, his own two feet. Either it was communal or it was exposed uh, always before the public. In the suburbs and the exurbs, where the typical family of America lives today, tiny nuclear families, they inhabit enormous houses in which each person has his or her own bedroom and, and sometimes even their own bathroom. It is no longer the rule that you know your neighbors. Communities increasingly tend to be virtual. The participants either faceless or firmly in control of the face that they present. Transportation is largely private. The latest SUVs are the size of living rooms and come with onboard telephone players, CD players, and TV screens. And behind the tinted windows of one of these high-riding, I-see-you-but-you-can't-see-me mobile privacy guard units, a person can be wearing pajamas or a licorice bikini for all anybody knows or cares. Now, we've been talking for weeks about healthy Christian community. That is not a description of healthy Christian community. You uh, probably were on to that already, weren't you? In fact, the goal of this study together, we began with the new year, has been to understand better and hopefully to, to live into more effectively and fruitfully what is 180 degrees from what most of our culture understands as community. It is, it is a calling, I think, upon us as God's people to be part of something that is both strange and wonderful. Potentially, it is so different, done well, Done in a healthy way, it is so different from anything that the world has seen that when it is lived out, it is truly strange. And people will likely think of us as strange. Yet, I believe that when it is healthy, it is so wonderful, it is so vital that it will call to the heart of many people because it is part of the original design that God has built into the fabric of every human being. I think it is possible that when Christian community is done well, something cries out in the heart of people who see that, and they say, oh, I want that. That is what I have been looking for. And when that happens, whew, that is a celebration because that is what God has called us to. I hope it's becoming increasingly clear that, that in this study, God created us to live in community. If not living in close proximity, like our, 
our uh, forebears, our ancestors in uh, the early years of this country, at least it's living with the commitment to be closely involved and intertwined in one another's lives. Golly, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Oh, I just hate the fact that you might get to know me well enough to know that I actually am a sinful creature. I know you suspect it. But if we get close enough, you might actually know it for sure. And that terrifies me. And don't get haughty. It terrifies you too. That's the nature of Christian community. You know? It's a risk worth taking because it is a risk that exposes the truth of who Jesus is and the reality of his kingdom more than anything else. I like to refer to it as as knowing and being known. It is scary, it is challenging, it is time-consuming. But it it is time-consuming. And we have better things to do with our time. Right? And it has the potential to be more life-giving than anything that we can give ourselves to. It is the single most powerful witness we have to the truth of who Jesus is. Don't forget Jesus' prayer in John 17. We've seen it many times over the years. Prayed for the oneness and for the unity of his people because in unity and oneness, Jesus said, the world will know that you, Father, have sent me. The world will know that Jesus is the Savior. Now, I could be wrong on this, but I think that observation of unity and oneness among a people group is only going to be possible when that people group spends time together and lives their lives together. Does that make sense? Okay. We're using as our primary text for this series, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It's a wonderful description of the life and the energy of the early Christians in Jerusalem the, the values that they held to. Uh, they lived this life together not long after Jesus had left them to return to the Father. And, and remember, it's, it's like that, that telephone game we've talked about. You know, the further away you get from the source, the more diluted the message becomes. But, you know, we get a glimpse of the early church in Acts chapter 2. These folks were close to the source. We need to learn from them. There is something in this story. And that's what we've been digging out over these weeks together that, that is for us. There is a, there's a pattern there. There are values that are embedded into to the life story of these people in Acts 2 that we need to be pay, paying attention to. So, Karen, would you read that text for us? Is that familiar? Have you heard that text before? Just nod your head and make me feel good, okay? All right, good, good, thanks. 
Those believers were devoted to remember to four things in particular. They were devoted to the fellowship community, which is where we have been in these past weeks. They were devoted to the apostles teaching. The apostles, remember, had been with Jesus. If they were going to know about Jesus, they were going to learn about Jesus. They dialed in to what the apostles had to say because they had been with Jesus. They were devoted to the breaking of the bread and they were devoted to prayer. And on this communion Sunday morning, we're going to shift our focus from the devotion to community to devotion to breaking of the bread, which was something that went on as a regular part of life in that community. I want us to answer the question, if we can, what did it mean to them as a way of preparing us this morning to come to this table as God's people. Luke refers to it twice in the Acts text, and you just heard that. He, he tells us that the believers gathered on a regular basis. They broke bread together in their homes. They ate with glad and sincere hearts. Now, that would have not been unusual in any way. In terms of bread being a part of first century meal, in Palestine, bread was a staple. In fact, it was one of the daily chores of the woman of the house, the wife, the mother, to get up in the morning and to either bake bread for her family that day or to make sure that she had gotten to the market either the night before or early that morning so that there was fresh bread for her family. Ladies, you were all up early this morning, weren't you? Preparing the bread, baking and slaving and making sure that your family had bread for the day. Okay, maybe not. In, uh, in John chapter 6, remember, there's a, there's a miracle story that many of us have heard about since we were, we were children. In fact, many of us might have been about the age of the boy who played a key role in this story. We talk about the feeding of the 5,000. Some of your Bibles may give it the, uh, the topic or the heading of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Jesus had gone up on a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee, and there was an enormous crowd that had followed him, at least 5,000 people. Not untypical in, in counts of that day, to only count the men who were present. And so we look at that number, we see 5,000 present, and we're thinking at least. You add in the number of women who were there, the number of children there that were there, and, and, and it could have very easily been over 10,000 people who were there. So picture it. There's Jesus. This crowd has gathered around him. The Scripture tells us that, that Jesus looked out at the crowd, and he turned to Philip, and he asked him, So, Phil, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? And Philip looks at him incredulously and says, Are you kidding? He didn't say that. He was thinking that. John says that Jesus asked him this to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Translated, that means set up. Big time set up. Not uncommon for Jesus to do that kind of thing. Always setting folks up. When he wanted them to understand something of 
supreme importance about himself, about the kingdom of his father. Philip's response, as he stands there with his mouth hanging open, looking at Jesus, says, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Exactly. That's exactly right. And you know the rest of the story. Andrew said that there was a little boy in the crowd. And what did that little boy have with him? He had five barley loaves. Barley was probably the cheapest grain of the day. So we know that right away this little guy was probably from a poor family. And and when we think loaves, not like that. You know, can you imagine packing five of those around, walking around the mountainside? No, five little loaves and a couple of fish. And Jesus said, sit them down. Let's eat. Proceeded to give thanks and to break the bread and the fish. And things got pretty exciting on that hillside as Jesus fed that entire crowd. Not only did he feed them, he stuffed them. It tells us that everyone had had enough. There was even leftovers. Now, we've all heard this many, many times, right? That's no excuse for the deadpan look that is on your face. We have just read and heard about an amazing miracle. Could there potentially be an amen in this crowd? Okay. John, it's a rough crowd. I I live with this on a regular basis. All right. Let's stand for our reading from this text. And uh, you need to know that as we jump in, it's the next day. Jesus has crossed the lake. He has literally crossed the lake. And he has gone to the other side. And when the crowd gets up the next day, they realize that Jesus is gone and John tells us that some boats had arrived, and so a number of the people got into the boats. They went across the lake, and they found Jesus. Let's read together. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven But it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All whom the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Does Jesus response seem a little bit harsh? The crowd, the crowd simply asked, what? How did you get here, Lord? When did you get here? And he says, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Ouch. Ask your neighbor. Why do you think Jesus said that? Go ahead. Turn to someone nearby. Why do you think Jesus said that? All right, what do you think? What does your neighbor think? Why did Jesus respond this way? It does seem a little harsh, a little abrupt. What do you think? Oh, okay. Not very harsh, Mike says, if you're talking about eternity, which he in fact does. Okay. Anyone else? What's that? They missed the point. Yeah. He wants to make sure they're, they're dialed in. Lee? Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Okay. Do you hear that? Crowd that was there was hungry. Uh, they were there to see Jesus. What they didn't realize is that they weren't really hungry for food, but that they were hungry for him. No possibility. What else? How many of you remember the, uh, the movie Karate Kid? <laughs> all week long, all week long, I've been thinking of that silly line in there where, you know, where, where uh, Daniel-san is, is always unfocused and distracted and Mr. Miyagi says, focus, grasshopper, focus. That's what this statement is, I think. Focus, grasshopper. Jesus 
is about to deliver, I think, some of the most important teaching that we hear him speak, uh, at least in the Gospels that are recorded for us. And I think it's crucial for us to be reminded of this on on Communion Sunday as we gather around this table. The, the, The text, of course, that we read is just packed with all kinds of stuff. I I just want us to hear again and think for a couple of minutes each about two particular statements that I think uh, make good common sense for us as we gather together. Jesus said to them, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Is Jesus suggesting that his people ought to just sit back and take life easy and not work in order to secure the basic needs that we have to live in this world? Someone said, no, no. Of course, he's, he's not suggesting that. What he is saying is don't give your life to stuff that doesn't ultimately matter. We only have one life to give. And Jesus' words, a, a warning, in fact... This is imperative language. This is a command. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Temporal stuff, Jesus is saying, will never satisfy the longings of our heart. But man, do we try. Jesus knows that as creatures, we have needs. And it is part of our creaturely condition and responsibility. To pursue those things that will satisfy our creaturely needs. But we mistakenly think that what life is all about is the gathering of those things. And, and given our natures, it's not long before we cross that, that, that ever transparent line between being provided for and giving ourselves to the securing of things that bring comfort and safety and confidence. It is far too easy for us to move beyond having our needs met and being satisfied with that to actually defining our lives by the stuff that we do or do not have, by the events and relationships and experiences that we do or do not have. Does this, does this make sense? Does it ring true? It's, it's who we are. I like what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, says Lewis. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. 
Jesus is saying that the things of this life that we believe are necessary for our survival, they will never satisfy our deepest longings, period. And then a few verses later, he makes this, our second statement. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So after he told them to to not give themselves to a life of pursuing what does not satisfy, then he tells them to give themselves to work for food that endures to eternal life. Give themselves, give yourselves, people, family of God at Applewood Community Church, give yourselves to the passionate pursuit of Jesus in your daily life. Give yourself to things of eternity and the things that really matter. Jesus called himself the bread of life. Staple, necessity, requirement, not only for this life, but for all of eternity. Jesus is the answer to our deepest longings. Jesus is the answer to what our hearts are seeking for and trying to be satisfied with in the stuff that does not last. If He is your Master, and if He is your Savior, then He is your finest provider. He is your sustainer. He is your protector. He is your healer. He is even your friend. Imagine the Lord of the universe. Your friend. Our friend. Jesus is saying to these people, I am enough for you, for this life, and for all of eternity. And when the folks in Acts chapter 2 gathered together, they, they were devoted to the breaking of the bread. Devoted themselves to, to breaking bread. What do you suppose... They remembered when they broke bread. They remembered the one who said, I am the bread of life. What do you suppose went through their minds as they remembered the one who was the bread of life? They, they remembered the things that he had taught. The things that he had done. The ways that he had, had challenged them to see their lives differently. To see God differently. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. My brothers and sisters, we come to this table and we celebrate the bread of life. Paul tells us, Paul told the Corinthians and he tells us that The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to those that were at the table with him, this is my body given for you. Do this always 
in remembrance of me. Remember me. Focus on me. Rejoice in me. Talk about me. I think that's probably the thing that strikes me the most when I think of that early gathering of believers in Jerusalem. When they broke bread together, yeah, they were eating a meal that they needed to survive, but they were eating a meal that they knew had 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 purchased their salvation as they remembered and talked about Jesus. Imagine the stories. Imagine the stories. The apostles were there. They'd been with Jesus. Many of the folks that were in that gathering had been with Jesus. Oh, the stories that they told. The stories that they remembered. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Their passion, their focus was upon Jesus. So I invite you as brothers and sisters in Christ, come to this table and remember and rejoice and celebrate the bread of life. Jesus took the cup. Scripture tells us that after the supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Brothers and sisters, we come and we rejoice in this new covenant of Christ's blood that brings our complete and thorough and forever forgiveness. Now there is something to rejoice about. Bread of life. Blood of the new covenant.